0: Hello friends, it's Jamie with Light at the End. Thank you for joining us. For those of us with limited knowledge of hospice, it's the H word, it's where you go to die. And your mind might say, push that one away, we're not there yet. But like many uncomfortable topics, the more you know, the less scary it is. I've learned that hospice can be a beautiful thing and that the earlier you engage with them, the better. I'm so grateful to have Lillian Osborne Durst with me today. This woman is just gorgeous, inside and out. She lives her life with purpose and passion, and you can feel it when she talks about hospice. Lillian is going to speak with us about hospice in general and help us understand when we should start looking for a hospice and how to choose one. Lillian has been in hospice since 2010 and got into operations in 2018. She is now the CEO of Trailwinds Hospice in Boulder, Colorado. I'm excited for Lillian to share her depth of knowledge with us today, so let's get started. Hi Lillian, it's so good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Thank you so much for being here. I am really excited about this conversation because I feel like it's just one of those topics that people avoid, but we really need to talk about it. And I know that you're going to be a great person to walk us through the ins and outs of hospice. So thank you. Thank you. It can be a very scary word for people. Yes, we talked about that hospice and death itself, but they're so important. It is a critical moment in someone's life. And
1: I think the more information you have, the better prepared you are, the better you're able to make decisions and you're able to walk with your loved one in
0: making those decisions. Absolutely. I would love to start today with hearing about you and how you got into this work and why it's meaningful to you.
1: It was a very personal experience. My grandmother passed away in 2009. She was diagnosed with dementia, and we weren't really given a lot of information on what that progression would look like. And no one told us that ultimately it would be it would be her terminal diagnosis. So we made decisions that were out of you know, lack of knowledge. But she eventually went into an assisted living facility. And it was a lovely facility, but they were not prepared for the memory care that she needed. And so towards the end of her life, there were multiple trips to the hospital. She was in a lot of pain. We would have ER trips and she would get admitted. There were IV hydration, blood transfusions, IV antibiotics, and each time she seemed to get worse. And I didn't realize that there was an alternative. So about three days before she died, She was in the hospital and they were getting ready to discharge her back to the assisted living facility and the hospitalist recommended hospice. And I didn't know really what that meant. I mean, I knew what hospice was. It was like everyone else thought, a place you go and die. She wasn't going anywhere. She was going back to her room in the assisted living facility. And so we talked about it a little bit and decided that it would be the right thing. She was experiencing a lot of pain and we were talking about symptom management And so she was discharged back and the hospice team came and they admitted her. They gave us a lot of information very quickly. And we had to process a lot during that time. And it was the whole family in one little tiny room. Some people hadn't seen each other for years. Some people didn't like each other. It was a heightened emotion. And I had the privilege of being with her when everyone else left. And she was put on a level of care called continuous care. So there was a nurse sitting at her bedside and really managing her symptoms. And during that time, it was late at night, the nurse took the time to educate me on what was happening. I think she could tell. Am I don't emotional. I think she could tell that I really was unrealistic with my expectation of how of, of how this was going to look. So she sat next to me and she taught me what death and dying look like. You know, she said, Do you see her fingers and how they're turning a different color? That means oxygen's not flowing, blood's not flowing. This she's her body is starting the dying process. She taught me about how her breathing would change and what to expect. And the gift that this woman gave me, I will never forget. So I was able to, to spend that time with my grandma rather than trying to coordinate her curative, you know, care and her what we were gonna do with her, you know, tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So those moments that she gave me were a gift that I'll never forget. And I was able to start that grieving process. So that changed my life. Very quickly, she passed away in December of 2009. And by March of 2010, I was in hospice. I made it my mission. If I could educate people earlier, if I could help them understand what hospice really was, if I could prevent that from happening to someone else, and watching their loved ones suffer, then that was going to be my new mission.
0: Wow, that's so beautiful. And I'm sorry you went through that with your grandmother. I know that that must have been extremely challenging, like you said, not to ever see any improvement, but see her go through this trauma of going into the hospital and having these procedures done. And I think she's so proud of you.
1: I am just very fortunate that I was able to take that experience and impact other people's lives.
0: It's amazing. You are so passionate about it and you're doing what you set out to do. Here we are. And you are going to help educate people that are currently in it or thinking about it to like have that knowledge so that when the time comes, it's not so scary. I think
1: that's Absolutely. really great. And to be able to know what your loved one's wishes are is such a gift. So though this is an uncomfortable conversation and it's something that we don't always want to face to truly know what someone wants for their end of life experience and to be able to provide that is such a gift, not just to your loved one, but to yourself as well.
0: Right. Right. Because like you said, the emotions are already so high when you get to that point, that you're sad and you're distraught. And then to, on top of that, have pressure of decision-making that you're not really sure if this is what you're supposed to be doing or what their wishes are. I can imagine that that weight is unbearable. So to be able to come in with a loose plan, of course, everything isn't always going to go to plan. It's like a birth plan, right? That's exactly
1: what I compare it to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so many people have a birth plan, but so few have a death plan. So I'm glad we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. Continuing on the topic of hospice, can you just give us an overview of hospice, what a team looks like, what their roles are, that sort of thing?
1: Absolutely. Okay. So hospice is a philosophy of care provided by an interdisciplinary team. When someone has been given a prognosis of Six months or less, if their disease follows the normal progression. None of us know what that progression will look like for each person, but it's just a general idea. So some people are on hospice for a day, hours, and some people are on on hospice for six months plus. So that's just a general rule that Medicare provides us. We are, like I said, a team of clinical people. We have a hospice medical director or physician, a, a registered nurse a social worker, spiritual counselor, and a nurse assistant, a CNA. So those are the people we are required to have on the interdisciplinary team. We also have volunteers. And hospices will sometimes provide ancillary services such as massage therapy or Reiki or reflexology, music therapy. So those are also people that can
0: be part of the interdisciplinary team. That's pretty incredible. And
1: what do those people do? So hospice has four levels of care. We have our routine home care. So this is the general care that people receive in their home. It's that whole interdisciplinary team that they choose that see them to manage their symptoms and everything related to that initial diagnosis. Then there is respite care. So when a patient who lives at home, their family's experiencing maybe some burnout or they need a break, then we provide five days of respite care in an inpatient setting. Continuous care. So when a patient has a symptom that is very hard to manage or uncontrolled, we then provide what's called continuous care. And so that is someone at the bedside, a, a nurse at the bedside until that symptom is managed. So if someone has extreme pain and we're trying to get the right medication regimen in place, then we'll sit there with them until that's controlled. And then general inpatient care. So that is when you go to a a place, it could be a hospital, it could be a nursing home, it could be a freestanding inpatient center. And it's the same level kind of as continuous care. So when someone is experiencing symptoms that are unmanaged and you need a higher level of care, so you need to be in a setting where you have access to other things. Mm -hmm. You can be provided general inpatient care until those symptoms are managed. So it's not indefinite. Typically, that stays three days-ish. Okay. So it's not a long-term stay.
0: Okay. And in order to understand which level of care is needed, is that something that the doctor recommends? Is that something the hospice team evaluates?
1: the doctor and the and your registered nurse will talk about the symptoms and they'll determine if it's an appropriate level of care.
0: Okay. And on the respite care piece, you said 5 days. Is that 5 days a week that someone would come in for like an hour or two so that let's say there's one caregiver at the home, let's say like I had my mother living with me and that I was the sole care provider. Would that be something so that I, I could take a break? Is that what the idea behind that is?
1: That's a great question. So the level of care for respite care is not provided in someone's home. So it is up to five days in a different setting. So typically it's a skilled nursing facility where someone will go for five days. Okay. Um, up to five days. But what you're talking about, that's what our wonderful volunteers are are able to help with. So we have a number of patients who have volunteers that give reprieve for that hour so someone can go to a doctor's visit or get their hair done or just take a nap.
0: Yeah, that's so important. And so you have the nurses and you have these other components I guess the nurse is the consistent piece because you have the diagnosis, you have the recommendation, and then that tells you how often and how long the nurse will be coming and staying with you.
1: Yes. So the nurse really with our patients and their families and our physicians and the rest of the interdisciplinary team create a care plan for each person. And based on that person's needs, that's when they determine how often you'll be seen by your CNA. And the CNA does personal care, so they can help with bathing, showering, light cleaning, dressing. And people typically see a a CNA a couple of times to three times a week. And the social worker and the spiritual counselor also work with the registered nurse and the physician and the family to create the frequency for them as well. So if a family chooses to have a social worker involved or a spiritual counselor Then they'll go, and they will provide that care for forty-five minutes to an hour. You know, maybe once a week, but typically it's every other week.
0: Okay, that's pretty incredible. Just to know you have those options there, Mm
1: -hmm. and the bond that our team forms with their families is really incredible.
0: Yeah, I mean to have someone come in and support in that way during that time you really couldn't help but connect with them my grandmothers were on hospice and one of them my great grandmother was living with my parents at the end of life and the hospice team that came to visit her became like family i mean they still keep in touch and when i was talking to my mom about this episode she was like do you remember barbara her daughters so big and beautiful now and telling me about this woman that was in our life that, you know, really took care of my grandmother and will always be thankful for it.
1: It is such a vulnerable time for people and it is such a sacred space and it is such a privilege for us to go into someone's home. I mean, to be allowed to walk into those moments. The team very much feels the same way about their families and the, and their patients. So it is just this
0: relationship that is um it's just it's sacred it is and it's just it's so special Mm -hmm. you know as you say that I think that's a great segue into different experiences with different hospices and the fact that all hospices are not created equal I know that if you are a hospice caregiver then you are likely a beautiful soul and very like-minded with all of the hospice caregivers of the world. So we're not so much digging into the caregivers being different, but the hospice itself. Um, I know this is something you are passionate about. If you want to tell us a little about that, I would love it.
1: I am very passionate about this. And there are wonderful people that work for a number of different type of hospices. So thank you for acknowledging that. You have some hospices that are for profit and non profit and you know, that's a tax status, but what is the purpose that they're driven by mm. so there are a number of different types of owners of hospices. You have private equity that owns hospices you have publicly traded hospices on the uh, on the market.
0: Did you know that I did not know that that's that's a little shocking. that's not something I would have expected
1: no there are there are publicly traded hospices
0: so it's not so much that the team is different as, as much as the backing behind the team, and so maybe you can talk a little bit about what a purpose-driven hospice looks like.
1: I would love to. So purpose-driven hospice, I think it's really where do they invest their money? So are they investing their money on the team and what does in their patients and what does that look like, right? So a a hospice that is truly patient-focused, the way that we do that is our nurses have a smaller caseload. I've seen nurses have caseloads from 12 patients. I've seen some nurses have caseloads 25 to 30 patients. So if you can imagine the difference in care of having 12 patients you're responsible for versus 30 in the quality of time. The quality of care then improves when you give people time to truly get to know their patients and their family members, what they want to be able to identify symptoms earlier to be for that patient to be seen more frequently. So, you know, someone with 30 patients could probably only see their patients maybe once a week, maybe every other week. Mm -hmm. When you have, you know, a smaller caseload, you can see your patients multiple times a week. So you can identify when those symptoms are starting and you can make interventions quickly. And the same goes with the rest of the interdisciplinary team. So our social workers, I've seen organizations give social workers 50 to 100 patients. Well, how much can you truly get to know your families and their caregivers and what their needs are if you can't even see them once a month?
0: Yeah. So there's probably some that don't ever get seen if that's the case.
1: Right, and you and patients do have the right to say I don't want a social worker or a spiritual counselor or a CNA, but they have to see the nurse and they have to see the physician. So those are the two team teammates that they that are assigned to every single
0: patient. Yeah. And- I would not have known that this was an option. I imagine being in a scenario where I'm told that someone that I care for, that I love, needs hospice or that they recommend that they move to hospice. And thinking, they'll just give me the business card for the hospice I'm supposed to call, that, that I wouldn't have a choice in that matter. And now I know that's not the case. And so I would love to hear about how do we choose a hospice? As the one that provides that higher level of care that we all desire.
1: I've heard many times, I thought hospice was hospice. This, you know... One agency that provides care to everyone. And so understanding options is truly important. And I think that this question is one of the most important questions that I can answer. Um, so when you are looking for a hospice, there are a number of different resources. Medicare has hospice compare, and you can go and you can look, and there are quality measures that we're all rated by that are publicly reported. So you can go and you can look at the quality scores on Medicare Compare. And you can compare up to three hospices at once where you see them on the same screen, but you can look at all the hospices in your area. So you put in either your city or your zip code and it will pull up everyone that is licensed to provide care in that specific geographic area. And they get this information a couple of different ways. So they look at our quality indicators from what we report to them. So what does our charting look like? Are our patients in pain when we admit that? Things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then there are surveys that family members are sent after their loved one passes, and they actually are the ones that are rating us.
0: Which is great. I mean, that's
1: who I would want to hear from. Absolutely. And as as a hospice executive, it's who I want to hear from. How is my team doing? How are we doing? And so it's a great tool for us to get feedback and then for the community to see the type of care we're providing that's where I always steer people first Just look at Medicare compare and you can see the hospices and you can look at their quality and then you can choose a few to interview and I recommend interviewing a few you'll really get to feel the heart of that specific organization when you meet with their teammates and the questions you should ask their teammates you know typically how many patients does each nurse see well my, how many patients does my case manager manage How many patients does the CNA see? That's very personal care. When you have a CNA that's, you know, doing that personal care, you want to make sure that they have the time, they're not rushing through. You know, how quickly can you get to us? What is your response time in an emergency? I think are really important questions. So the reason I say that is we are all required to be available to you for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But when hospices cover a huge geographic area, if they don't have enough coverage at night, it's gonna take them a long time. And that time, an hour can feel like an eternity when you're watching your loved one not be able to breathe or have pain. So, what is your goal to get to us after hours is a really good question to ask. Some other questions that I think are good, you know. How long will it take you to get to the admission? Can you see me today? Mm -hmm. Because like you said, when you're told that your loved one needs this level of care, it's often very emotional and challenging and you need help. So getting to people quickly is very important. And then other questions that you can ask, you know, who is their pharmacy? So does their pharmacy deliver to your home or do you have to go pick up your prescriptions? Um, how quickly can your equipment get to you? And I think another good question to ask is what type of organization are you? Are you privately owned? Are you publicly traded? Are you locally owned? Just so you have a better understanding of the type of organization that you are involving yourself with.
0: Yes. I think those are all such important questions. So thank you for sharing those. And I will put a link to Medicare Compare on my website. And I will also Write out that list of questions because I think it would be so helpful for someone to be able to look at them or print them out. And then if you think of any others after this call, we can always add those as well. Okay,
1: what a great resource for people.
0: Yes, thank you so much for that. Okay, so another very important question that I have for you is when do we start looking for a hospice?
1: That is a very good question. A lot of times people wait too long and they don't get the full benefit of hospice. So if you've been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness and you see yourself going to the hospital multiple times, if, you're, you, know, if you have multiple hospitalizations in a month or two months or three months, you're, someone is falling frequently, you see multiple infections, those are all great indicators that it is time to, to contact hospice.
0: And you said that it's really never too early. So as soon as you know that, like you said, that you have a terminal illness, then you could start checking into them, right? You could start interviewing. You could be fully prepared so that if it's six months from now that you like know who you're going to be working with. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. And we have people do that pretty frequently. They'll just ask us for an informational visit and they tell us we're not ready for hospice yet, but we want to learn more and we'll, we'll meet someone in their home and we'll help them by having that conversation early and choosing which provider you would like to work with and engaging when the hospice physician determines that you are appropriate. The benefits of that are you get to know your care team and your care team gets to know your wishes. And, And so there's death with dignity. We ensure that your wishes are respected. So if you want to stay in your home, we will do everything within our power to help you stay at home and die where you choose. And having those relationships often bring joy to people during a really hard time. So to have a team of people that are trained and specialized in what you're experiencing, specifically when our culture doesn't truly talk about it very often, it can bring a lot of peace and a lot of joy. And so it is for the patient, but also it's a huge benefit for the family members and caregivers.
0: Right, because it gives so much support. Absolutely. This makes me think about your story when you got into this in the first place and your grandmother was going to the hospital regularly. Did someone say at some point she could be on hospice and we could stop all of this or was it the, at the very last minute that you were told that I'm wondering if someone mentioned it and the family pushed it away or if it's something that a family member might need to bring up. So
1: it was three days before she passed
0: away it was the first time anyone brought hospice to our attention. And
1: just those moments with that nurse teaching me gave me the ability to be present with her. And it allowed me to start the grieving process. But had I been told months before that, it, it would have given us so much more time to be with her, to focus on her rather than focus on her hospitalizations, making sure that she's getting physical therapy, occupational therapy, You're know, doing these things that were kind of futile and didn't improve her quality of life at all. It could have given us time to truly be family. And we were, I was also very much a caregiver to her. So taking a step back and allowing someone else to be that caregiver
0: would have been a a beautiful gift. It would have been so much more peaceful. Yes. Less hectic. And so I think that's really important piece to pull out is that if your person is starting to, you mentioned this, if there are multiple hospital visits, if they are falling a lot, if it's exhausting to continue going to the hospital, it's time to ask. And I encourage you to ask. It's the only way that we will
1: overcome the stigma of the H word, as you said earlier. So just this dialogue and having those conversations. And it could be something that the that your doctor's afraid to bring up. You know, they too yeah. have a relationship with you. Right. And that's a hard thing to say to
0: someone. I have a question. We're talking about terminal illness, but I'm wondering about elderly people. My grandmother is 94 years old and my mom and I talk about her care. And I have said, you know, maybe she'll live to be like 107. Knowing Mammy, that's very possible. But she's doing some of those things, right? She's sleeping more. She's not getting out of bed as much and she's fallen some. And so I feel like it's time for my mom to ask. But if there's not a terminal illness, how does that work for elderly people?
1: So there are other signs as well. Weight loss, you know, unintentional weight loss. Is someone withdrawing more? Not just sleeping more, but are they withdrawn a little bit? Our physicians are hospice and palliative certified, so they are specialized in identifying terminal illness and prognostication. So when you do go to a hospice, if you were to say, let's just talk to someone, we would then ask for records to be sent from the physician's office or the hospital or the nursing home, and our physician would review those records. And they would be able to give us an idea of whether or not this is something that needs to happen now. When the nurse goes out to talk to you or the social worker goes out to talk to someone with hospice, they have an understanding if they get that information earlier of where that person may be and help you steer the conversation a little bit.
0: Okay. That's so helpful. Now I would like to talk about the opposite, which I feel like is really difficult, but that is if someone is young Mm -hmm. and so many young people are passing from cancer. I shared with you that that's inspiration for this podcast was My Dear Friend Passing. And you let me know that especially young people have a hard time engaging hospice because they want to fight as long as they can.
1: We have this ability to make cancer our adversary and something that we control right? So you fight it, you beat it. And I think it can apply pressure to the person with cancer and make it harder to make that decision than it already is. But as a young person, you naturally want to seek as much curative care as you can. And you should, you could have in your mind, your whole life to live. I mean, years to live. And so that is very normal. It truly is. But the one thing I would say is I think we need to allow people, specifically young people, who are diagnosed with a terminal cancer, to not feel like a failure for choosing comfort care versus curative care. They did yes. not fail.
0: Yeah, I've never thought of that before, but it's so true. It's like fight cancer, beat cancer. And how exhausting that must be if you are like, I'm doing everything I can and I can't, right? Absolutely. And, and I think it's so important for us to have this conversation and for the people that are supporting this person to have this conversation with them and say, hey, I support you and you are not in control of this and and I want you to live and I want to do everything that we can to try to, again, I want to say fight it, beat it, right? But at some point when you're done and you want to just be comfortable, that's okay. You didn't fail. And then it's not like you said, three days before it's this time that you get to peacefully be with your people, and just enjoy these last moments. Quality
1: versus quantity. Yes. Yes. The treatment alone can be, there are so many side effects that are exhausting, along with the emotional piece of that. There was, if I can share a story. Yeah, please. On my service years ago, there was a young veteran. He was 27 years old and he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he had been in and out of the hospital. It has metastasized to his bones all over his his body. And that's extremely painful. The hospital could not get his pain managed. He was young, his body was strong. He was, you know, he was in just this crippling pain. And finally, This was, I think, two weeks before he passed away, they were referred to us and we went to the hospital and met with him and got to understand that there were also some family dynamics. So there was some emotional distress and spiritual distress as well, and that that were really affecting him. And so we got him discharged from the hospital that day. We were able to get him home. We brought equipment into the home. So we had a hospital bed. We have, we use medications differently sometimes and we use different tools. So we were able to get his pain managed to a point where he was, it was okay. He was it wasn't excruciating anymore. He was still experiencing pain. I don't want to paint the wrong light here, but it just wasn't that crippling pain he was experiencing. By giving him that opportunity and by his pain level being reduced, he was able to have conversations with his family. So his estranged wife came to his mother's home and talk to him there was so much closure that happened when he got home with his family and that he was able to pass peacefully with his family around there was no there was no tension it was a beautiful moment and such an honor to be a part of and such a privilege to help coordinate and so when i think of young cancer patients i often think of this man and I wish we could have gotten to him sooner, to give that to him sooner, but I'm so thankful that we were able to give that to him at all.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That is really beautiful. And I just imagine, as you were saying that, like the opposite, if he would have continued being in pain and trying to somehow cure this cancer that had taken over his body up until the last minute and had some of that closure so that he could peacefully and I'm sure that that happens often too.
1: I imagine he probably would have passed in the
0: hospital and I know that most people want to pass at home and that that is not often the case because of the failure to have a plan and to communicate that and then also probably because of this piece as well of not stopping and saying enough is enough. And I just want to go home. Thank you for that. You know, one of the things you mentioned at the beginning with the story with your grandmother, and then something that I think is so important for people to hear for themselves and for their caregivers is that biological process of dying, understanding the signs And so that is going to be an episode that I do here pretty shortly, because I think that for this conversation, it fits right in with, okay, if we're going to switch gears, if we're going to get comfortable, how do I know when that time is?
1: Absolutely. And for me, it gave me the opportunity to, like I said, to be present and to start the grieving process. And it's not something that we're taught. And it's really even not something that as a medical professional, you're given a lot of experience during your training. You know, most people don't do a hospice
0: rotation. Oh, wow. And the doctor's oath is to save. I mean, I know that's not the exact word. It's to do no harm, but the mission is always like fix, 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 right?
1: Absolutely. That's what they're trained to do right and thank goodness they're trying to do that.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. We're not we're not taking away from that. We're very thankful for that.
1: That is why hospice and palliative care is a subspecialty of medicine for physicians now. So because we do need that specialty as well.
0: Yes. Okay, I'm glad you brought up palliative care. If you don't mind, I think we probably should wrap up pretty soon, but I would love just to hear the difference in hospice care and palliative care
1: so i'm going to say something confusing okay (laughs) all hospice care is palliative care but not all of palliative care is hospice care okay okay so palliative care is treating symptoms related to a chronic or life-limiting illness you can still be seeking curative treatment so you can still receive dialysis you can still receive chemotherapy radiation. So you're still able to, to do those things while having your symptoms managed. It's a different level of care and it's paid for differently as well. There's no standard with palliative care. So everybody does it a little bit differently. Sometimes it is provided at your home or in the community. Sometimes you see a nurse practitioner who can come out and medically manage as well as a social worker. Sometimes you see an, an RN and there is no medical management. And sometimes it's a physician, so it can look very different in the community. In hospitals, the palliative care team does a lot of advanced directive conversations, and they do consult for symptom management as well. And so that is truly the difference between palliative. So you can, if you think about maybe it's a little bit longer out, there's no real six months or less Mm timeframe put on palliative care. And you can still receive treatment. You pay for it like you pay for a physician if it is that level of service. So if you're a Medicare patient, that palliative care service would bill Part B for your nurse practitioner, and they would bill Part B if their social worker was licensed counselor as well, and you would receive that copay.
0: Whereas if it's hospice care, you're receiving the palliative care, but it's included in the hospice care package, if you will. Yes.
1: And you have um, limited time timeframes and, you know, if the disease follows the normal progression of six months and you also have the no longer seeking aggressive curative treatment piece for hospice.
0: Okay. And I'm so glad you brought that up going back to the when and the younger people, especially when you choose hospice, you do have to forego that curative care. And yes. that's so hard and such a difficult decision to have to make. It is a very heavy decision. And the last question I have for you, you've been talking about the six month timeline. Does that vary state to state is the first part of my question. And the second part is what happens if, for instance, my great grandmother, who was told that it was time for hospice, she was on for six months and then It expires. Can you get back on hospice? Is there a window when you have to be off? How does that work?
1: So those are good questions. The six months or less time frame is Medicare requirement. So that is across the country. It does not vary by state. And then if someone does live for over the past that six months, they're not automatically kicked off of hospice. If we see a continued decline and we still believe that this illness is terminal. They can stay on hospice. You can transfer hospices at any time. There is no time frame where you have to be off for any amount of time. So let's say your grandmother graduated, as we call it, from <laughs> hospice, and she did really well. And then, you know, something happened and she's back in the hospital and they're like, you know what? I think we really need to talk to hospice again. It is just as easy to, to get hospice care a second time as it was the first.
0: Okay, great. That is so good to know. Okay. Well, the last thing before we go today, I would love to honor a loved one in your life who has passed by sharing something that they taught you or modeled for you.
1: That is such a lovely question. (laughs) I lost my other grandmother in 2020 and she was a fiery Irish woman. And she would always say, Lily, you got to have oompa.
0: <laughs>
1: so, and what that meant was just you never give up. You always approach life with passion
0: and you never give up. Oh, I love that. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing. Yes. Thank you for asking. Yes. And thank you so much for being here and providing us with all of this wonderful, important information. I feel like we, can and should and probably will have another conversation because there's just so much to talk about. But this is such a great start as far as understanding what the options are and how to go about finding care. And so thank you so much for walking us through all of that.
1: Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to continued conversations.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Lillian. Bye bye. Thanks again to Lillian for joining me today. I really have a better understanding of what hospice encompasses, and I hope that you feel the same, that you learned a little bit about what all they have to offer, the different players, the unique ways that they operate, and most importantly, that you have a say when it comes to choosing a hospice for your loved one. Hospice can be a beautiful thing, Offering to support not only to your loved one, but also to you, the caregiver. It's great to know that not all hospices are created equal. And I appreciate Lillian going over some questions to ask when interviewing hospices. I will be sure to post those on our website at lightattheendpod.com. And I will also post the link for Medicare Compare that Lillian mentioned. I hope this episode was helpful to you. Please share it if you think it might be beneficial to someone else. And I love hearing from you with feedback and episode ideas. So please email me at jamie at light at the end That's ja mom i at light at the end Thanks for being here with us. Take care.